What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczak. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Dan Lytle from Ball State University about his research on policing. This is episode seven of Untenured Tracks. sort of um, two different prongs, really. Um, so on the one hand, I have uh, meta-analyses looking at um, criminal justice decision-making, trying to figure, okay, if we take a step back, sort of 10,000-foot view, what does the literature say about factors that influence arrest or factors that influence search decision-making? Um, and so most of my stuff in, in that realm has been in police, but my dissertation looked at uh, arrest, sentencing, and parole revocation. So my plan is to sort of expand that into sentencing and parole uh, revocation decision-making. The other prong is really looking at uh, satisfaction with the police and, and, and fear of crime, how those interplay. Okay. Um, so I was part of some research in uh, when I was at East Carolina University, um, working with the local PD there to um, to assess citizen satisfaction and, and parole revocation. That project kind of fell into my lap, so that's how that that prong kind of got started. As far as what I what I've been doing, and then a third area is sort of related to that second thing, and it's wanting to explore. LGBTQ um, attitudes towards the police, but then also police um, that particular group um, as officers and how, Mm -hmm. you know, that status affects their ability to do the job, if Mm -hmm. at all. Um, We don't know because no one's really looked at it. So (laughs) that's why it's been sort of an area of interest uh, for me. So I know you said that we don't know about that, but what have you been able to to kind of if not find, like, what have you been able to suss out so far from your work? Because like you said, I think probably most of the stuff on your area has been focused on race and gender stuff, but never sexuality. Uh, no. Um, and it's a new area that I haven't, I haven't done much back. It's, it's sort of in its infancy stage. So gotcha. I haven't really gotten much of a chance to, to dive into it, but, um, with some quick, you know, Google scholar searches, there's not a lot of anything yeah. on there. I found a couple books. Um, I dated a gay cop. That's sort of what kind of sparked the initial interest. I'm like, hmm, what is being uh, um, being being gay and being a cop? How, how What's it like to be you? Dynamics at work and that sort of thing. How do you, you know, straight officers like you tend? You know, my my own curiosities are: Do you tend do you know, LGBTQ officers, do they tend to be more closeted on the job because it's traditionally very male dominated macho kind of job. And so does that impact their ability to openly serve uh, in that capacity? Um, you know, my, my husband is, um, is in the Navy. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, 
was in the Navy when right around when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was sort of falling out of fashion and, mm-hmm. um, you know, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how that whole side of things got into it. I haven't done much in terms of background on that. It's more just a, yeah. it's a, it's a baby project that's waiting <laughs> to grow up. And, and <laughs> Very cool. Um, so what, what attracted you to this whole like area of policing research to begin with? Like, how did you get into it? Um, that started initially as, uh, when I was an undergraduate student, one of my uh, favorite professors at Marquette, um, she was a policing researcher and I don't, you know, that had always been an area where I, you know, kind of gravitated towards and I, I have no background as far as cops go, mm-hmm. um, no, no family or anything like that. Um, it's just, I, I enjoyed her class and mm-hmm. she gave me an opportunity to work on a research project in my senior year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, that sort of spurned my interest and she's like, Hey, you're really smart. You should go to grad school. <laughs> okay. It was the, the GRE seemed more appealing than the LSAT. So that's <laughs> sort t- of how I fell into that. I took them both, and GRE is way more appealing than the LSAT. Like, okay, the harder version of the SAT, I can take it on a computer and get my scores instantly. Yeah, and just memorize all those ge- uh, geometry equations or whatever. that Proofs and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, I just remember pi r squared. That's it. That's <laughs> <laughs> all I've retained from that. So I... I I feel like 10th grade me was right that I was never going to use this again. <laughs> um, so on the community satisfaction side, like what type of stuff have you found? Um, so when it comes to uh, citizen satisfaction with the police, um, a lot of it is more, uh, seems to be more demographic driven based mm-hmm. on, um, so that at least in, in the microcosm that is Greenville, North Carolina, mm-hmm. it seemed like um, uh, gender played a large role mm-hmm. um, where women were um, much more satisfied uh, with the police than men. Um, and then also um, fear of crime did, did play a role. If you had higher levels of, of fear, you had lower satisfaction with the police, which makes sense. Yeah. Constantly crime and you don't think police are doing much of a good job. You're probably going to not like them much. (laughs) So, um, but that's been kind of the the main thing of that little microcosm because the, the interesting thing about Greenville as a, as a place to do research is it, it's, it's this weird mix of both urban and Mm -hmm. rural all at the same time, because you have, um, you have a defined downtown business district. That's like right next to the university. Mm -hmm. Um, but you also have farms within city limits. So it has this interesting hmm. dynamic of being what, what I've dubbed sort of semi-rural, yeah. which from what I can tell from uh, you know criminology and studies that look at rural issues, it sort of seems to be the best definition because it's not suburban because it's yeah. not, you know, say a suburb of any major urban center. Mm-hmm. It's its own thing. But so. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Like, I, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania is technically urban, but the population of the city is now down to like 36, 37,000 people. Um, and there's lots of rural areas around. So mm-hmm. I think that's probably the best description of it. Greenville's a little bigger. Um, 
I want to say about 80,000 people mm-hmm. total. Um, but yeah, it's a similar sort of dynamic for sure. Mm-hmm. So does anything that you do focus on ways that police are, are able to or try to improve community relations at all? Not really. This particular project was more... Um, so how I got involved with it was the city was wanting to do recertification with CALEA, which is a law enforcement accreditation body. Mm-hmm. And as part of being CALEA certified, they have to um, do... Uh, surveys of public uh, on fear of crime and mm-hmm. satisfaction with the police as part of that process. So I was part of a group that was hired to to do that. So, um, so. Oh, no. Um, so I think people listening to this, and I'm, I'm a little surprised, too, because I've been working in this field for a long time. And the, the idea that law enforcement have to go through a certification or an accreditation process I think it's something that a lot of people are probably surprised about, right? Like, we tend to have this view of the police as like they're just there and if they're good or bad cops however you define it like they're just there right but there are there is this accreditation so can you talk about that for a second um well it's completely voluntary um and i will have to pull up uh all right mark can edit out the 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 airtime right um so, uh, CALEA stands for the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies. Um, so, it is simply a it's it's a voluntary uh, sort of accreditation, kind of like uh, for folks in our world, if their program got ACJS mm-hmm. certified. Um, similar sort of thing, where it's like you know, this is a national body that is recognized as legitimate by the policing world. Mm-hmm. So, if you have it, it's seen as um, hey, they, they went a little bit above and beyond what's mm-hmm. required because mm-hmm. no accreditation is required. Yeah. Um, maybe unless there's some sort of, um, you know, the Justice Department steps in and, you know, that sort of thing. It's like, you need to improve. <laughs> um, so this might be a way to, I, I, don't, I don't believe Greenville ever had one of those things and I'm not trying to insinuate that that's the case, but um, this is a way to show that, you know, as, as a police department, you're trying to, to go above and beyond and, and improve and better serve your community. Okay. And so what are some ways that police departments can show that? Um, what do you mean? Or, well, just like, so, so let's assume that it is like the DOJ has stepped in and things are terrible and they're saying you guys need to step up your game in every imaginable way. In my mind, that, that looks like a police department that's just turned into like the wild west, Right. Um, so in terms of accreditation and that trying to improve that community relationship, um, what would a department have to do? Um, well, uh, where I went to grad school in Cincinnati is a good example of that because they went from uh, a police department that um, – so a little background on them. Uh, in 2001, there was a riot in Cincinnati that was – that began because of an officer-involved shooting. Um, the officer was trying to find, um, a particular suspect, uh, from what I understand, it was a, it was a tight alleyway and the officer came around the corner, had his, um, gun out, uh, finger on the trigger, which you shouldn't do. The suspect came the other way down the alley and the officer shot him and killed him instantly. 
Um, but because the story, the, the story changed, you know, initially it was what I just described. And mm-hmm. then it was, oh, the suspect had a brick and tried to attack the officer. And so because that story changed and the relationship between the, the African-American community and the, the PD there was not good. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually uh, a riot broke out. And but now um, fast forward, you know, 20 years um, the Justice Department did come in and um, they implemented heavy community or in policing initiatives to try and improve. They became much more data driven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now they have one of the more progressive uh, agencies. They started a research par- research partnership mm-hmm. talk uh, <laughs> with the University of Cincinnati, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just really tried to make a directed, cons- you know, specific effort to improve that relationship. So I think what it really boils down to, and I don't necessarily have data to back it up, but just based on the, the anecdotal examples that I've seen, it's it's about police making the effort to, to do those changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, you know, um, if we take another example of a of a negative situation that has sort of ballooned and sort of changed the, the face of policing, the, the, the Ferguson, the events in Ferguson, you had a, you had a city government that was very um, corrupt and mm. using the criminal justice system to generate revenue. Mm-hmm. And that's never going to be a situation where it's going to improve and serve your citizenry well. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's about, taking a step back and really looking and understanding that the criminal justice system is there to serve the community mm-hmm. and not the other way around. So. so when you're, when you're teaching this stuff um, and I, so what proportion of students do you have that want to go into law enforcement? Like roughly? Uh, it's definitely the largest of any of our sort of career goal. Uh, aspirations for for students that are ball state okay so for me it's maybe 50 50 Mm -hmm. um when i started at wilkes it was it was probably much higher and it's it's changed um so how do you approach that in the classroom like with students that are are intending to go into law enforcement like how do you prepare them in terms of not just like you know the the everyday stressors of the job how do you prepare them for going out there and being good cops and like being with everything that you know about like the bad reputation that police departments have what's your approach um i think for for that for me it's about making them um we've started a very specific effort in my department at ball state to focus on uh, cultural competency inclusivity and diversity within the classroom um you know, adding extra policy language mm-hmm. um, in terms of in terms of those ideas into into syllabi, and really trying to incorporate it as a department culture. Mm-hmm. And so, I think for me, it's about taking these mostly you know white students that from rural Indiana that haven't had a lot of exposure to these issues because, mm-hmm. it, you know, if it's not there and directly affecting them, a lot of them haven't even thought about it yeah. because privilege. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so it's about exposing them to those ideas to make them cognizant mm-hmm. that, you know, this, uh, 
these issues are a thing. And as a police officer, you are going to be confronted by this mm-hmm. every day and how you react to it can, you know, improve the world or it can make it worse. So do that first floor. Yeah. I went up for my third year review right after Ferguson and mm-hmm. one of my colleagues, um, who has since passed away, he, he asked me, what are you going to do to prevent the next Ferguson? <laughs> And so, no and, and so there I am, like my third year, and, and this is my only tenure track job. Sitting there, like, oh my god, what am I going to do to prevent? Right. <laughs> what will I do if one of my students is ever on the news for doing something so idiotic? And so that like completely changed um, how I how I approach those students specifically, just in terms of like, I think they're the group that I want to expose to the reality of their work. Um, and so I say that because like. I'm just curious, do you have any like go-to topics in your classes that you know are going to be the ones that are like, this is going to really rattle these kids that want to go into law enforcement? Um, or like maybe the ones that are going to really surprise them. Um, I hope sort of, um, so, so right now I'm teaching a course that's called police in a free and diverse society. And it just Mm -hmm. started, you know, a couple days ago Yeah, because we started last week. But um, I'm hoping that by exposing them to, uh, so right now we're in sort of that history of police and mm-hmm. how they developed and that sort of thing, um, and by by including other perspectives other than you know straight white males into the class as as authors for things that we're reading and talking mm-hmm. about, I'm hoping that that will expose them, and it seems to be working um, <laughs> in terms of. Granted, it's a sample size of like two, but uh, at, at this point, but the, their own curiosity as I'm as I'm lecturing and talking about the readings and you know asking them questions mm-hmm. seems to be, um, you know, they're actively engaged in wanting to learn more about this. Asking me questions, I'm like, well, crap, I have to go look that up. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good moment. Like that's a good problem to have right. in our job. Like I don't know. <laughs> I mean. Let me Google that for you. <laughs> exactly. I mean, for me, it's it's always when I show um, a documentary about solitary confinement. That's that's the one that like really either usually that or um, the house I live in. Um, <laughs> those are those are the two that really like wreck them. In in intro to policing, um, I've uh, I show um, a. It's a PBS documentary um, about what happened in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina mm-hmm. in the in New Orleans, and um, you know uh, uh, there were there were a couple students after it talked about um, this uh, African American individual that was found torched up in their car. Mm-hmm. Um, they later figured out it's an African American individual. Um, just the the corruption that's demonstrated in that particular documentary, the students' initial reactions are no way that can happen. And uh-huh. then, but, you know, as I, you know, in, in that intro class, as I unfold, like, hey, this isn't, you know, police and corruption, unfortunately, is not a new phenomenon. Um, you know, it starts to kind of, I hope, sort of uh, change that perspective of resistance and, and that sort of thing. And, and also, um, on sort of a related, a related thing in research methods, I, I often show 
the documentary Acres of Skin, mm-hmm. which is about a, uh, a dermatologist in Pennsylvania that used inmates as lab rats and the horrific stuff that happened to these guys is, is just unbelievable. And of course, nothing happened to the dermatologist who passed away. Um, when did this happen? I've never heard of this before. Um, geez. Uh, it was, me- it was in the eighties. Okay. I want to say, uh, Holmesburg prison, uh, in Pennsylvania is, is where it took place. Um, uh, Dr. Kligman was a was a um, dermatologist with uh, the University of Pennsylvania, and essentially okay. the way it worked was anybody that wanted to test something totally could. And um, yeah, there, there's there's a documentary that oh goes along God. with the novel or um, with the with the book that that a journalist wrote about it, and it's basically the same as the Tuskegee syphilis experiments yeah. and that sort of thing, just you know, more modern. <laughs> like my, my skin is crawling. Just like I'm looking at some of the stuff on Google right now. And even the title of the book is like, this is like a horror show. Oh man. Yeah, the, the, the title comes about, um, because Kligman looked at all these inmates just waiting to be, you know, experimented upon as acres of skin yeah. for him to use. So that's, oh man. Yeah, teach I, research methods and want to talk about ethics. <laughs> Great video. Just yeah. show around one. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm okay with ruining their appetites. No, I mean, with with some of the stuff that's come out with, like, how maybe the Stanford prison experiment was completely mm-hmm. fictional. And, and Although, the, even if it was fictional, I think the issues that are brought up in it are still valid yeah so i'm probably still going to teach it as an example of hey don't do stuff even remotely like this even this even if this was um yeah faked you know yeah um, it, so i believe the the bbc replicated um uh the the shock experiments mm-hmm. that sort oh. of goes along um i'm blanking on that guy's name too oh and i <laughs> I, I gotta teach, teach this like next week. I know for for methods. So. <laughs> what, is oh, what the hell was that guy's name? <sighs> All right, I've got to Google this. What? Um, Milgram. Milgram. Yes. Oh my God, we just lost our PhDs. <laughs> lost our nerd cards. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh but, man. Uh, yeah. 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 But yeah, the BBC replicated that, and I want to say the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and the clips used to be up on YouTube, but I think they're gone now. But anyway. S- same results. Yeah, um, I mean, that's not surprising. Um, I guess in either case, it just like you said, it goes to like not only is it unethical because of what they were doing, it's it's also unethical because they completely manipulated their findings. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't want this show to be a, an opportunity to really bash anybody professionally, but man, I don't like Philip Zimbardo. <laughs> it's like, I'm just. Well, he comes up in my world because he was. An experiment that he did was um, uh, with. Uh, was sort of part of the inspiration for the broken windows idea. Yeah. Or the broken windows thesis, 
where he took a car in Palo Alto and one in the Bronx. And uh-huh. the one in the Bronx was stripped instantaneously, you know, almost uh-huh. instantaneously. And the one in Palo Alto, he had to go there and smash a window with a hammer before, um, before you know, anybody did anything to the car. So. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> just bad, just bad research across the board. But this, I think it just goes to show how people who have this sort of cult of personality around them, you know, even even though we're trained to be objective and, and to take everything with massive grains of salt, you know, there's still that that tendency to see the name attached to it and just think that it's automatically good. And right. the, the type of stuff that he's gotten away with and been able to perpetuate. And just say you never got into any trouble for any of it is just maddening. <laughs> this is... Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready for Social 101 to start so I can rail <laughs> against him. Just have my captive audience for my pet peeves. So we talked about stuff that you're working on coming up. We talked about stuff that you've got going on in class. We talked about some of the findings of your work. Um, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to talk about? Um, I think... Um... The, the, the meta-analyses, um, so what I've done with that has been um, looking at suspect characteristics and their impact on, mm-hmm. um, on decision-making, so things like uh, race and gender and ethnicity and their impact on uh, officer arrest decisions and then search decisions. Um, but what I also have sort of in the works is taking another look at the, the demeanor hypothesis, um, which is the idea that if someone has a, quote, antagonistic demeanor, however that happens to get operationalized, mm-hmm. is more likely to get uh, arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, seeing if, you know, coming back through the, the research and seeing if that um, if that is, in fact, the case, and then also taking a look at... Um, the trial penalty, um, uh, taking a look at the, the trial penalty and then also, um, uh, the type of counsel that someone has, whether it's mm-hmm. private or public and looking at the impact, um, if it does impact the, you know, sentencing decisions, how strongly does that impact? Cause certainly, you know, you shouldn't be penalized for, you know, having a, going to trial versus mm-hmm. taking a plea, um, but you likely will be. So seeing, you know, trying to get some idea of the, the amount of difference between those two. Uh, and then also does, does counsel side matter? We often think it does, but it, it may not be the case if it's, um, it, it may impact, um, you know, if somebody has a public defender versus a, versus a private attorney. It, it may not. So seeing, you know, if it does, how much does mm-hmm. it work? Does it at all? So, so what have you been able to find about the demeanor hypothesis? Because the police that I work with here swear by it. Um, right. So the sort of taking a look back at that whole idea, um, a guy named Dave Klinger in the mid to, to late 90s said, we're measuring that idea incorrectly. Um, if, if two people are arguing and or being, you know, non non uh, or being confrontational with the officer and, you know, you, uh, try and take a swing at him, you're not being arrested for, uh, salty 
misdemeanor. You're being arrested because you tried to commit an assault. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was saying there was a measurement issue. Yeah. Um, and then um, because in some data that he had out of Miami, he found that demeanor when you separate out the, you know, um, interaction phase crime versus uh, versus just the demeanor side of things, that demeanor did not make a difference. Um, and so after he released that, after that paper got published, folks were going back and sort of reanalyzing old data from, say, the police services study, which, which was a massive systematic social observation that took place in the 70s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then also um, it impacted how we measured things moving forward for the project on policing neighborhoods, which was a massive systematic social observation that took place in Indianapolis and St. Petersburg, Florida. And then Cincinnati did their own systematic social observation, and so it impacted that. Um, But the problem was, when you look back meta-analytically, there's only been a handful of studies that have produced dozens of papers in each of those studies. So when we take a look at this from a meta-analysis standpoint, um, there might be a smaller sample size than we're expecting because you do one of these systematic social observations, you generate you know, a dozen or dozen and a half papers out of that one data set um, because it's such a large undertaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, th- I think ultimately it probably does just because the, the nature of, of being a person, if somebody's being a jerk to you, you're probably going to come down harder on them than if they're not, you know? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think that's true in in any profession. Um, so it pro- there probably is some Im- some impact there, but you know, at the end of the day, I think we need to hold officers to a higher standard because they can kill us. Yeah, um, they they have legal authority to you know kill people. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay with holding them to a higher standard, and we don't know if. Uh, we don't know until we check kind of thing. So that's why I'm very eager to, to get that um, uh, analyzed and finished and, and results out and that sort of thing. So, Yeah, I'm glad that you said that because it's been a minor point of contention here. Um, I do work with the, the county um, disproportionate minority contact program. And so part of that program is teaching high school kids or like adolescents um, like how to interact with the police, right? And so when you when you have contact with law enforcement, to like they're they're big advocates of um, taking your hood off if you're wearing a hoodie. Like they are to the point of of obsession, actually, of over hoodies. Um, take your hands out of your pockets. Um, say yes sir, no sir. Um, be very very respectful. And every every time we've done the program, at the end of it, there's a piece where. They do a role play where the kids, well, you give them a scenario and the kids play the cops and the cops play the kids, <laughs> right? And it's it's hilarious um, because the cops have this like this go to set of um, like I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a jerk teenager, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and their their go to joke with that is to hold their phone out and pretend to be taking a video and yell "World Star," <laughs> which always always kills them. Um, and then the kids get flustered immediately. And I've seen multiple times where the kids um, draw their fake gun <laughs> and ask the crowd, you know, can I shoot him now? And they think it's hilarious. Um, and what I've been trying to, like, push is that, you know, we should be holding the police to a higher standard in these forums because whatever the kids do, 
like whatever, however much a 16 year old mouths off, they don't have the, the legal right to arrest you and and kill you. Right. And they're teenagers. Yes. And cops are adults. (laughs) Yes. Um, You know, it's also kind of, kind of the same thing. It, it, based on what I read, it doesn't seem to make much of a, of an impact in terms of, uh, arrest, um, or use of force or, or search decisions, but requiring college of it, college education seems to tap into some intangibles Mm -hmm. that, um, that officers that don't have them seem to be at a deficit in terms of, we see more de-escalation, uh, behaviors and, and lower, um, some studies have shown lower incidents of use of force for, for college educated. There's, there's less Mm -hmm. turnover and and that sort of thing. Um, so so that's interesting. So that means that there is not necessarily like a maturity thing unless unless this means like some of these officers are getting into the academy younger and then therefore uh, they're uh, like, I don't know. I, I think it's more sort of the the professional development yeah. skills that you get in, in college, mm-hmm. um, you know, and even though it's it's a different set of life experiences, I think um, – having the, the exposure to those critical reasoning skills and, um, you know, exposure to things like cultural competency yes. and inclusivity and diversity, um, sort of circling back to the yes. earlier thing, um, really, um, helps you. It, it allows you to be more understanding of cultural differences and how those might interplay when you're acting as an authority figure in that mm-hmm. interaction. Yeah, definitely. So I remembered what I had forgot to ask you before. It came back to me. Um, so I Wilkes is a teaching school. So I'm on a I'm on a four four load, um, mm-hmm. and my my very broad area of interest is like adolescence and early adulthood. So I I tend to think of it as like I'm not teaching. I'm in the lab for these four classes every semester um, because the students are are legitimately fascinating to me. And what what I love them one of the things I love the most is getting them really riled up about public safety on campus. Like the, well, mm-hmm. now it's the Wilkes university police department. We just transitioned over to a private police force. Um, and so what I like is having students who are, um, very conservative, very pro law enforcement. Um, and then you say, well, what do you think about public safety? And they will turn into the most left wing radical, <laughs> <laughs> abolitionists that you have ever seen and they're unable to like they don't realize that they're doing it you know what i mean like they, they're not reconciling like so your experience being mad at public safety is identical to the experience of of millions of people being mad at the police departments in their community right. <laughs> and and you can get them i can, if i don't know what to do what to do that day or i'm not feeling it just walk in and say, what do you guys think about public safety? Furious, just ranting and raving. And when we, when we switched over, the chief came in, um, volunteer, like I said to that class, like, Hey, we're, we're switching over to a police department and those students. And one of them who was very, very conservative was very angry and emailed, um, and set up on his own a time for the chief to come in and talk. And he came in, I thought he did really well. And then afterwards, like, what did you guys think? He was such a politician. I don't believe this is happening. 
like just completely making it up, um, like almost as fan fiction of, right. of what had actually happened. And again, it's like, well, again, you know, you guys have to think about how how are you able to be so pro law enforcement when this this career law enforcement officer is here telling you, and then you just instinctively don't believe him. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I will say the experience here. I I hadn't thought to to get uh, as as into student perceptions of of our our university PD as as you just did. So that's something I might you know uh, work into in the classes in the future. Um, but I do know that that our UPD here is really trying to uh, play up community oriented policing. Mm-hmm. In terms of there is uh, lunch with a cop programs and that sort of thing to put a more personal connection to try and reduce some of that just instantaneous resentment uh, because of the nature of being, you know, college kids and this is the authority figure, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and and do those sort of positive interaction um, for – between the the PD here on Ball State and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and student, the student population. So. Yeah, and I, I do want to say that our our public safety or, or UPD is is very good. <laughs> so, um, as radical as I might be <laughs> when it comes to this stuff, the, the all things being equal, um, we've got it pretty good. Um, especially compared to some other places. So yeah, as, as a service activity, I work uh, in the, the title nine world of hearing uh, sexual misconduct cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I will say in, in that realm, the, the police department is super supportive, you know, helping students get the services that they need, you know, and providing information where to go and what to do and that sort of thing. So, so we'll end on a, on a positive a positive note. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you for your time, Dan. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on.